Hello, it's Friday the 7th of October. I'm Gary Bowerman. On today's show, I'll be discussing what it's like to travel around the region in this unfolding new era with my guest, James Clark, Editor-in-Chief at Future Southeast Asia. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. Just me today, as Hannah is conferencing beside a lake in Switzerland. Over the next 30 minutes, I'll be discussing all things travel, tourism, and digital nomadism across the region with James Clark, Editor-in-Chief at Future Southeast Asia and author of the Nomadic Notes newsletter. James manages a location-independent travel business and since 2003 has been on the road constantly across Southeast Asia and beyond. So James, thanks very much for coming on to the Southeast Asia Travel Show. How are you doing today and where are you right now? Um, great, Gary. Thanks for having me on here. Today I'm in Hanoi in Vietnam. So I've been based in Vietnam for off and on for the last few years. So it's always good to come up to see Hanoi again. And how is Hanoi at the moment? I guess it's rainy season. Uh, it's sort of the end of rainy season and it starts to coming into a really sweet time of year where they where it's sort of autumnal for this part of the world where it gets a bit cooler and uh, less rainy. So yeah, definitely the best time of year to come up here. Right. So we're going to talk a little bit about your travels across the region over recent months and, and back through history as well. That's going to involve quite a lot of train talk. So while you're there in Hanoi, have you ridden the metro line? How's that developing there? Yeah, so I came up here in uh, earlier this year, in the middle of the year, and I had a look at the metro for myself. Um, so they've, they've got the first line up and running, which is line 2A for some reason. I don't know why they call it that. But anyway, this line had a lot of... Uh, trials and tribulations to get running it took it took 10 years to build um, but now it's up and running and it's the first metro system of its kind in Vietnam so it's the first of like eight lines that are planned for the city so uh, it's a there's a long journey to go to try and build out a big metro system that'll suit this city and does it get used a lot I mean is it is it popular uh, it's so far there is actually a pretty good amount of um, ridership so far, considering that it doesn't really go into the centre of the city. It's just sort of um, on the edge of the city and it goes out to a, uh, a bus stop, like a big bus station for regional travel. Like if you're a tourist, you'll you'll never even know that it exists because it's not anywhere where you would probably go to as a tourist. So I went out there and had a look and, and rode it a few times and got off at some different stations just to see what's happening around some of the major stations because it'll probably you know help develop some of the areas in the city that where they've built it uh, so for now it the main thing will be just to keep building the the lines that'll connect to it so it'll make it a more useful system yeah, interesting so let's talk a little bit about you first james on linkedin you describe yourself as a long-term traveler and digital nomad since 2003 so looking back, what brought you to Southeast Asia and why did you stay and, and continue traveling? Yeah, well, I guess I've been, an, I've been an expat since 1999. So I started out uh, as a doing the working travel holiday visa in London, like Australians get the two-year UK visa. So I took advantage of that and I lived in London and I lived in Ireland for a year doing the same visa. 
And that's when I started becoming a, a digital nomad at that point at 2003, uh, just by making websites and, and online marketing and stuff like that. And so I was actually that in those in the 2000s, I would spend more time in Europe. And then I ended up coming to Southeast Asia and spending more time here. And uh, at that point, I was still renting a house in Australia. So I was like spending half the time in Australia and half the time traveling in Europe. Um, but then I, I just left the house completely and just set up in Southeast Asia around 2009, 2010. And I didn't really think about that I was going to be here this long. I just kept staying every year. And then next thing you know, I've, uh, I've been exploring the region more than anywhere else. So you are an inveterate traveller. You said there you, you've been stationed in the region since about 2009, and that sort of encompasses from 2010 through 2019. That was a real period of, of change and development in travel and tourism across this region. So if we, we rewind a little bit, James, before the pandemic, now what were your travel plans? I mean, how did you see tra- that travel was changing in this region? Because it was pretty fast, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It was changing at a rapid pace, especially because... You know, the inbound tourism from China was obviously having a huge effect. Like it was just a bonanza. Every every country was just trying to like, you know, trying to make the most of this. So you would just see like, you know, just a rapid amount of tourism. And, you know, I, I, I would see it. I spend a lot of time in Thailand and then Vietnam. So I would see how places change by just the sheer amount of people that were visiting there compared to when I would have first visited. And then in Vietnam, where they've built new uh, airports, like there used to be, like in Nha Trang, the airport was in the city centre, it was one of the old um, Vietnam War airports, and then they moved it outside the city, which enabled it to, like, grow and and get international flights. And then by the end of uh, 2019, Nha Trang had flights from 33 mainland china cities like from all over the place like from places like like if you're not familiar with china you would just look at this board and go well i don't even know half of these cities but they really tapped you know the market for you know the the chinese travelers were looking for a you know a tropical beach destination to visit that's like only a few hours flight away so obviously uh places like nha trang saw a huge potential for you know, tourism that had not been tapped before. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, a lot of the work that you do, a lot of the, the with Future Southeast Asia is looking at infrastructure development. And that, that period, we, we did see a lot of infrastructure, development, as you said there, particularly airports. And there, there was a lot of talk about new railway lines, but it was airports that seemed to be the, the focus of this. Not much attention pre-pandemic, though, was paid to sustainability, was it? And there was very little talk. There was a lot of talk, sorry, um, but very little was done. It was all about building out. That seems to have changed now. There's this whole, uh, you know, we have to manage the environment after COVID. But, but that was a big leap of faith, really, through the, the pandemic, wasn't it? Because if we go back five or six years, as I said there, it was all really about building out rather than how we actually manage uh, the impact of doing that. Yeah, I think there was totally... Uh, it was just a free for all up until 2019, I think, because there was this, uh, you know, talk, just only talk really of like sustainability. But there wasn't really when you go to these big, like coastal developments and you just see the amount of construction that was happening without really any thought for on the ground infrastructure or, you know, there was there would be layout layout for like oh, you can only develop in a certain area, but then there would be incursions into like 
a forest that wasn't meant to be developed and and then were they the people that were pun were punished or did they let it go through so you know there's a lot of talk but the action doesn't you know marry up with the talk yeah that's very true so Let's, uh, let's bring to a close that particular decade and let's look at um, COVID-19 because obviously that has changed so much in our region. It's changed so much worldwide, not just in travel, but in the way people live, work, absolutely everything. Where were you when you first heard about COVID-19 or novel coronavirus, as it was called then? And what were your initial thoughts? Yeah, I was at the uh, airport in Ho Chi Minh City on my way to KL and I was just scrolling through the news and I saw that they locked down Wuhan and I was like, oh, that can't be good. This is like a pretty big city and, you know, if they have to do that, it must be uh, pretty serious. And uh, so that I was travelling in January, February, March of that era. So every day the, the news just kept getting a bit louder and it was in my mind every day going, wow, this is really, uh, this isn't really turning out well. So it was sort of... Uh, I remember that day clearly and, and just remember thinking, wow, this is something's going on here. Did, did your mind flash back to SARS? Were you in the region when SARS happened? No, it wasn't. So I, I kept reading about um, that was, I guess, the only comparable situation that, that we had at that point to sort of go, well, will it be like that? Will it be over quickly or is it going to be something else? Yeah, that's true. So you mentioned that you were traveling 2020, you were traveling January, February, March, and then we moved into a pretty dark period. Uh, across Southeast Asia, borders closed, that kind of thing. Lockdowns were put in place. Where did you spend the, the early periods of the pandemic? Yeah, so it was March. I was in Thailand and then I was like, you know, the month that's still going, as they say. So it was sort of, I was like, wow, this is really getting out of control. And I, I had my, I was renting a room in Saigon. So I was like, I think I better get back there and just uh, ride it out. So I, I changed my flight. And I went back to Saigon on the 14th of March. And then the borders closed in Vietnam on the 17th of March. So I just sort of scraped in. And then I stayed in Vietnam for the rest of 2020. So we had a lockdown in uh, Saigon in April. And then for the rest of the year, it was pretty good because they, um, they shut down the borders with China pretty early. And they just shut down as many flights as they could. So we had zero cases for like months on end. So it was actually... A pretty good time to be there because there was uh you could still travel domestically so i made the most of that and just traveled around to some places i hadn't been to before and it was quite good and then 2021 came around and then the delta variant broke out and it just got out of control there and we ended up having a big lockdown i, I was also on a um, tourist visa as well so i kept having to get my visa extended they were allowing tourist visas to be extended for over a year so it was pretty good of them to do that but it, eventually I had to leave to um, make sure my visa didn't run out when I was stuck there so I ended up going to Europe in August last year and then just uh, by then was traveling around there. Whereabouts did you spend time in Europe? So I went to Croatia and then went through the Balkans and then I came back to Thailand via Dubai so it was sort of uh, spent a few months in Europe just before Thailand reopened. It's interesting that you say that because I had a few friends who were doing relatively similar at the time, and I think that some of them spent time in Bulgaria and Albania. Did you visit either of those? Yeah, I was in Albania, which was great. Uh, like 
uh, coming from like Southeast Asia, big cities, like there were the, the cities in the Balkans are so not very crowded. Like it just felt like there was a lot of space. And uh, so I, I felt kind of comfortable just sitting in outside cafes and not going indoors too much and enjoying, enjoying it there. So let's talk about uh, your regular newsletter, Future Southeast Asia. Tell us a bit more about it. When and how did it begin? And, and what's the focus? What, what's behind it? Yeah, so I've been uh, traveling in Southeast Asia for years. And I, like I write about travel at nomadicnotes.com. And I increasingly found that I was interested in the infrastructure and future development side of uh, travel in Southeast Asia. I think my I always say that my interest in that has been born from terrible overnight bus rides that I've taken. Like I did a trip in Sumatra that took like 20 hours, like from Lake Toba to Bukatingi or somewhere. And I was like, oh my God, there surely must be a train they're planning, you know? So I'd, I'd go online and look for it and then it'd be like, oh, there are, they're actually planning some railways in Sumatra, but they've been planning it for years and this information is all over the place. So I end up just going down these rabbit holes of uh, research of going okay so when where would this line go and where would it join here and could I do this trip so increasingly I was sort of getting more into the uh, infrastructure side of sort of because there are a lot of railways that are planned that have been planned for decades but some of them just have been stuck in planning mode for so long um, so I wanted to see what is going and what's not going yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a bit of an infrastructure nerd myself. And that's one of the reasons I started picking up on your newsletter. Um, my interest came because I lived in China in the early part of two, the 2000, well, 2003 to 2010. And I saw just the, the infrastructure development that, that was put in place during those years. It was phenomenal, you know, the, particularly the high-speed railway, but also the number of airports. And then moving to Southeast Asia, it was interesting because, as you said, a lot of these projects have been in the planning stage for several years, but the funding wasn't there. And then the funding, a lot of it, all the debt funding came from China and that sort of triggered some of these projects, but they do get delayed. I mean, that's one of the things that I've noticed in Southeast Asia, as opposed to China, where things get delayed, but they tended to happen pretty, pretty promptly. Here, everything takes so long. Have you noticed that? Oh, absolutely. So yeah, I, I, uh, I was in China for two months in uh, 2009 and, uh, I would just have my lonely planet and I'd be like, oh, okay, I'll get the train from uh, Shanghai to Beijing or something, but I'm going to need all day, aren't I? So I ended up, you get on it and I'm like, oh, I'm already here. So, because I was just so used to Southeast Asia travel and just, yeah, that time you were there, that was the amount of trains they built in that time was incredible. So seeing firsthand all of the, you know, how fast they built the trains there, then you come back here and it's just, taking forever uh, but on the other hand i guess seeing how fast they built the last china railway was sort of an example of like well here's what china can do because they built that in like five years that's true so that's the the future southeast asia side of your work you, you also reference their nomadic notes which is another project that you have going how do those two things differ and, and do they overlap yeah there is a bit of overlap and actually what happened was i was writing uh, more and more about infrastructure and, and construction and cities in nomadic notes. And I was finding that I was sort of getting too nerdy on the infrastructure stuff where I sort of I wanted to keep nomadic notes about travel. And it was actually, so I, I started Future C Southeast Asia just part-time where I was just putting 
like construction updates on there. Like if I go to a city, I'll write a travel report and then I'll do a construction report. And then it was during the pandemic when basically nomadic nodes just the traffic just fell through the floor and, and died because there was no one's reading about travelling to Asia. So I turned future Southeast Asia into a full-time project. So because, you know, there's still funding going on and construction is building through the pandemic. So I still had a lot to write about there. So I sort of, that's now my main side because I've got more to write about. So I, I kind of, when I go on a, tr- um, a trip to go and report on the city, I will actually do two reports at the same time. So I'll do a travel-related post for Nomadic Notes and then I'll do a construction post, you know, writing about what skyscrapers are being built there or what subway system. So there's two posts for the price of one there. So let's get into some of your recent travels. You've done some interesting travel over recent months and you, you referenced there a moment ago the China-Laos Railway uh, and you actually spent some time uh, traveling on the train uh, and you wrote a really fascinating photo blog about it what did you discover about that and, and did you enjoy the experience yeah that was great uh, i've been really looking forward to vi- visiting that for years like i was in loang prabang like in 2018 and i i was watching the construction happening near there so i was all i've been really keen to write it i um, mean it opened in december 2020 but laos was still closed at that point so I, I was just sort of waiting at the border, proverbially waiting at the border, waiting for them to like, let me in. So I was pretty much there like within 10 days. I just happened to be in Thailand at the time. So I was like, oh, great. That means I can go up there and have a look. And it was probably good for them that they were closed for so long because they were able to open this train and just run it domestically and then, you know, let them work out how to run it and get everyone trained before displaying it to an international audience so by then it was already you know pretty efficient like everyone knew what they're doing and uh it's 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 a game changer like you know they're getting up to from Vientiane to Luang Prabang in like two hours is just mind-blowing when you consider that it was an all-day trip previously on a on a old road uh I can't imagine like what it's going to be like when it's fully operational, like with China and then the high-speed rail that'll connect Bangkok to uh, Vientiane. And you made an interesting uh, reference, I think it was on Twitter or it was on social media recently, that there's been um, a cancellation of a flight route in Laos and it's probably the first uh, victim of this new new railway. Yeah, so the, it, the, the train goes from Vientiane to Muang Sai in the north and before it goes up to Boten on the border. So previously, if you wanted to get up there by bus, it was just like a real, you know, two-day trip or something like that. And then they just have like this one uh, flight for people who can afford it to go up there on the on the plane. But now you've got this like three-hour train that, you know, it's it's quite affordable. And so that that was the, – the flights were never going to have a chance. So – I, I was mentioning how there in Europe there are some train routes that have been famous for having been uh, cancelled because the the train is so good it just you know kills the the flight route. So I've often thought about that, like you know the the tra- there should be a high speed rail between Singapore and Kuala Lumpur uh, because that if that was a ninety minute train trip that would just like you know kill the need for having flights on that route. 
Yeah, I think that's why Malaysia pulled out of it, actually, um, about a year and a half ago. But that's now back on, on the agenda. It's an interesting point you make there because that also happened in China on the shorter routes. Um, you know, a lot of the flights were just, they just couldn't compete, as you said. That's exactly the, the right reason. So let's move on from Laos um, and let's head to southern Cambodia. Again, you, you wrote some very interesting photo blogs about two places you had contrasting experiences in Kep and Kampot. Tell us a bit more about those. Yeah, so Kep... And Kampot, like, well, Kampot is a really one of my favourite little places in Southeast Asia. It's just got this nice balance of, like, the the street layout is in the sort of 19th century French colonial style where it's just easy to walk around because the newer Cambodian cities are usually just one long street where everything is just built along it and it's hard to walk. Uh, But this this, uh, place is very nice and it's got really nice old buildings and that but yeah obviously it's gotten the attention of developers and there's a big like a 40-story tower being built in the old historic area where they were originally planning to submit it for unesco world heritage listing but that won't happen now because there's this big tower there and then you go down to kep which is uh on the coast and it's, it's not much the coast isn't as nice as some of the beaches at like sea nukeville for example they're building a artificial beach there and park so there's like a huge amount of um disruption there there's like they're filling in the sea and putting sand there and it's really quite amazing how much work they're putting in there which i don't know i don't know why they would do it i saw some of your pictures and it was quite interesting because some of the previous seafront resorts and even the sailing club have now been moved inland because they're building so much but they're reclaiming land in front of it yeah, there's this, this like a four-kilometre stretch where they're basically turning into a park, but they're filling in like 100 metres of the sea, basically. So there, the, the sailing club is now like 100 metres inland, and and then they, I don't know where, they'll, they'll have to get sand from somewhere else to make a new beach. So it's quite amazing that they're doing this, and I don't know, I don't know why they're doing it, but anyway, they, you'll see it in the, I think it'll be ready in a year, so I'll have to go down and have a look. Yeah, I'll be interested to compare your pictures then and then and now. Um, we'll put a link up on, on the show notes to, to that article. So that's Laos, that's, that's Cambodia. Moving next to Bangkok, uh, last month you wrote about a series of railway messes in Thailand. Tell us more about that, James. Yeah, so this is where I get a bit nerdy because the railways in Southeast Asia run on a metre gauge railway. So it's like a one metre wide track. But all the new railways in the world, like the high-speed rail of China, use the standard gauge, which is 1.435 metres. And and that's the only technical thing that you need to know about this story. So, like, the the China-Laos railway is a standard gauge. Uh, So that'll come down from Kunming into into Laos and then it'll go into uh, Thailand, but it can't use the trains in Laos cannot come into Thailand yet because they have a separate gauge. So what Thailand is doing is building a new high-speed rail uh, from Bangkok to Vientiane, which will be standard gauge. So the train could then connect to the the tra- um, train in Laos. But the problem is that uh, Thailand has also been double-tracking and upgrading the current standard uh, metre-gauge railway. So they're going to have two different rail systems running next to each other all the way up to the border from Bangkok to Nongkai. So 
instead of just going, okay, let's just get rid of one of the, let's just get rid of the meter gauge and, and build out the standard gauge. They've been spending all this money on double tracking and, and now they're going to spend money on a double tracked standard gauge. So it's unusual for any country to just do this. And, you know, State Railway of Thailand is just losing so much money and doing stuff like this isn't going to help because they're just spending money to build this double tracked system. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, we've I've written about this, and we hear quite a lot about this this notion or this plan of China's to to build what is basically a pan ASEAN series of railways. It's not one railway; there will be a series, as you said, going all the way down to Singapore. That's that's the strategy. Um, but as you say, there are different types of trains, there are different types of tracks involved there. What's the what's the status with the with the Thailand railway? And there's also talk, isn't there, about Thailand and, and Kuala Lumpur tying up in future. I mean, this will take a lot of time. It will take a lot of money. Is it realistic? Do you think? Well, it could have been realistic if they had have got together like twenty years ago and like had a a forum on like what gauge to use. So it's like the same thing. Malaysia is having the is doing the same mistakes because they've just recently upgraded the railway from. Uh, Kuala Lumpur to Padang Besar, they've got that uh, electric railway, the uh, the, go, the ETS train that goes to Butterworth and, and Padang Besar, and it's it's great. It's like fast uh, electric railway, but it's a metre gauge as well. So they could have just built that as a standard gauge and then they would have been halfway to building a, you know, the, a standard gauge railway all the way from Kuala Lumpur to Bangkok. In Malaysia, they're building the East Coast Railway, the East Coast Rail Link, it's called, and it goes over to the East Coast and up again, and that's a like a 600-kilometre railway that'll be standard gauge. So the same thing, they've got one system, which is standard gauge, and another system, which is metre gauge, and then they can't interlock with each other. So, uh, And then the same with the, the high-speed railway from Singapore to KL, that will be standard gauge, of course, but they're also fixing up the the train from KL to Johor Bahru and upgrading that into a meter gauge electric railway when they should have just ripped it up and built a standard gauge. So this, uh, the same problems happening there as in Thailand. That's, there's some interesting insights that you make there, and particularly the, the East Coast Railway here, which is a great idea. I mean, as you said, it will go from Port Klang and then go all the way up the east coast of Malaysia, which is relatively undeveloped, there's a, there's great thinking behind it. But it's it's again, it's been delayed so long. Uh, they've rerouted it, I think, at least two or three times. Uh, it does seem to be on on way now, and that is that also doesn't it? I think that goes right up to the border with Thailand. Is that correct? That's right. It goes up to Kotabaru. So yeah, and the the rerouting you're talking about, they were they kept changing where it goes uh, near KL. Um, you know there was. Obviously, every time a, a government changed, they kind of they changed the plan a bit, um, and it yeah it was a became a bit of a circus there. But they have settled on a a, a new a, a route that'll go sort of near KL. So there will have to be a train from KL Central that'll connect to one of the outlying stations. Right, right. So bringing things up to date, um, you've recently been writing about Vietnam's railway, and of course. High-speed railway is an issue in Vietnam as well. There's this long-touted idea, which seems to be back on the agenda, of a north-south railway. What's the latest there? Is that going to happen? Uh, well, I'll, I'll never say that it's going to happen until I see a shovel in the ground. So I'm not here to make predictions because uh, you know, this is the, that's the worst thing you can do in this part of the world. But you know, 
we've as we've seen with Laos, you, you would never have predicted that there would be a train that going through Laos ten years ago. So, uh, but in the case of Vietnam, they first announced a high speed rail from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City in two thousand and seven, and they said that they will start construction in two thousand and ten. So. Obviously, it's 2022 now and nothing has happened yet. So that's, what, 15 years of announcements. And so I have a a fact sheet on Future Southeast Asia, which just collects all the news articles. Uh, Because every year, though, I've been here for like off and on for 10 years and every year it just becomes a a bit of a joke where they're like, oh, here it is, we're going to build the railway. And it's like, oh, didn't I read this article last year? So, yeah, you can go through this page and you'll see every time that the announcement was made. And apparently they're making an announcement last month. So I think there's a big government meeting happening at the moment. So maybe they'll announce it this week. So who knows? But, yeah, it'll be, it'll be a game changer. Like, I've, like we've already seen how, like, flights have been cancelled in Laos because it's a, such a better alternative. There's so many city pairs in Vietnam which could be replaced by uh, by the train. And, and, you know, the thing is that most people, like business travellers, probably won't even use it to go, you know, if it's if the fastest one is implemented. It'll still, the, the flights will still be better, but there's like so many different routes that would just change everything. So it would just be so good if they do it. Yeah, absolutely. So... We've, uh, we, we've basically covered the railway systems of, of Southeast Asia, James. You've been traveling nonstop as soon as the, you were able to after the pandemic lockdowns and, and border closures started to ease. What are some of your observations that you've noticed in this sort of unfolding era? Have, have things changed in terms of travel? Have they not changed as much as maybe was expected or is it somewhere in between? Yeah, so I've, I've came back to Thailand when I was able to. So that was sort of at the end of last year. So obviously, uh, um, it's sort of like a tour of like doing a body count of what's still open and what's still closed. Like I, I started out at, you know, Khao San Road in Bangkok at, you know, in January this year when it was just dead. There was just no one there. There was just, uh, just so many closed shops and there's there's no way to tell if they were going to reopen or if they were just closed for, um, temporarily. Uh, and, you know, places like the big cities like, Bangkok, Ho Chi Minh City, they rely so much on, you know, provincial workers, people like you come to Saigon and half the people live there from the Mekong Delta and and they all went home. So getting all the workers that were working in tourism back into jobs again is going to take a long time because there's just, you know, people aren't coming back home. They're like, well, I'm going to stay here because do I want to go back to the city and, you know, work again uh, in these jobs? So it's going, to, it's going to take a long time to get everything back to normal. So, uh, yeah, travelling around the islands of Thailand earlier this year, I saw, you know, just so many places were closed and, you know, the workers who, you know, usually there were not there. So uh, on the one hand, it's been good to travel. Like the airport's been pretty good. Like I've been coming in and out of Bangkok and uh, it's like been great. We haven't had any of the problems like Europe where they've had all of these uh, airport delays and lost luggage and that. Here I've been, it's been pretty good. Uh, so we're sort of not at the peak time yet. But yeah, they definitely we're still uh, going to need a few years to see how what reopens fully again. 
Yeah, that's a good, good observations, James. So you, you're on the road pretty much constantly. You've been in Hanoi, I think, now for about 10, 11 days. Where are you going next? And how far in advance do you plan? Where, how do you decide where, you, where you're going to move to and, and how long you're going to stay? Well, at the moment, I've been traveling more than I have been in the last sort of five or six years because I usually I, I would have a base in Ho Chi Minh City. Like I had, I was renting a place for a few years there. So it was quite... You know, when I say I'm traveling a lot, I was just staying there and coming and going, sort of hub and spoking. But since I left last year, I haven't had a um, like a long term visa anywhere, so that sort of like upended my setting up a base somewhere. So and also because I was just you know in one place for uh, sixteen months or something, that was the longest I've ever stayed in one place since I became an expat in 1999. So that was like, I feel like I'm making up for lost time. Uh, <laughs> but usually uh, I would I would just plan my year ahead by just picking out some events or conferences or a couple of places that I would like to go at a certain time of year and I'd use that as a uh, an anchor. And then I'd just sort of build itineraries around that with some flexibility so now for, for me, it would be like here, I'm, I'm just going to spend a lot of uh, time building up future Southeast Asia. So I look at like, oh, there's some exciting new developments happening. Like they're saying that the Jakarta-Bandung high-speed rail will open in June next year. So that would be something I would love to be there near the start of. And there's a new railway being that was meant to be opening this month in Sulawesi of all places. Like there's the first 100-kilometre stretch of the Trans-Sulawesi Railway. So uh, if there's a new railway, I'll go and have a look at and then I'll just fill in the gaps from there. Brilliant. James, fantastic to talk to you. Um, is, is Malaysia on your horizon anytime soon? Absolutely. I was there like two months ago. Um, I went down to Forest City, which I haven't written about yet, so stay tuned for that. And... I'm a regular visitor two or three times a year in normal times to Kuala Lumpur and Penang is one of my favourite places in the world to just hang out at. So, yeah, I'll probably we'll see you there at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more about Penang as well. I was lucky enough to live there for a year and uh, yes. sort of I was dragged back kicking and screaming to hell. <laughs> but, yeah, and any chance I get to go to Penang, yeah, I love that place. Absolutely. Great. James, thanks very much for joining me today and thanks very much for your insights and hope to see you at some point uh, here in Malaysia. I'll see you there. Thank you. So that brings to a close this week's show. My grateful thanks to James for sharing his regional insights with us today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And don't forget to send us your thoughts and your comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. Drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. So that's a wrap for today. Hannah and I will be back next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. We'll see you next time.